So when the Protestant reformers or the patristics or the medieval scholastics talk about Christ's presence, they're wrestling with this dual aspect. The Christ is fully present to all of creation as the eternal word of the Father, omnipresent along with the Spirit and the Father eternally. Um, and also he is particular. He took a specific human body and lived in it in a real tangible way. So when they talk about the extra Calvinism, what they're really saying is Christ is both simultaneously fully present in his incarnate state, in his incarnate body, and at the same time, beyond it as the second person of the Trinity, the omnipresent eternal word of the Father. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. You know, many times when the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is brought up in theology, well, oftentimes evangelicals are a bit squirmish, if I can put it that way, a bit uneasy, a bit nervous, even a bit hesitant to articulate what we call the hypostatic union, this great mystery of the Christian faith that's so central Dare I even say that oftentimes evangelicals today even go so far to be indebted to many of the modern currents of Christology. We've seen this for decades with the rise of canonic Christology in the 20th century and some of the ways that even evangelicals have absorbed some of that canonic Christology. Uh, Some have gone so far to say when they look at the incarnation that uh, the deity of Christ, well, it may still continue in the incarnation, but nonetheless, it's it's perhaps passive or latent or inoperative. And sometimes they get quite upset if you even appeal to the divinity or the divine nature of Christ in the incarnation. But are we actually articulating Christology in a way that is both consistent uh, with the scriptures as well as the church and the hard work that's been done, say at the definition of Chalcedon, or also with the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Believe it or not, we focus on many debates over the Lord's Supper during the 16th century, but did you also know that in the decades that followed, many of these debates really brought to the surface Christology. How do we actually understand the person of Christ and the two natures, both divine and human natures of Christ? Well, this created no little controversy, but it also allowed the Reformed theologians and the Reformed tradition in particular to think hard about these deep questions and to articulate the divine nature and the human nature in a way that was, well, consistent with the church fathers and also preserve the union that we see in the incarnation, but 
but at the same time allowed them to speak of the divine nature in a way that did not compromise the divine nature's attributes. I can't help but think of that famous catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism in question 48. It asks a very specific question. It says, if Christ's humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? This is quite a difficult question, but the answer is very clarifying. They said, certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of his humanity that has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is in and remains personally united to his humanity. Well, this emphasis or this language of beyond the bounds, sometimes this is called the extra. And did you know that this was actually a very common affirmation, not just in the catechism itself, but by many different Protestant reformers, whether it was John Calvin or Zwingli or Peter Martyr Migley, among others. Well, I have asked K.J. Drake to come on the Credo podcast to talk to us about this extra, this doctrine. Sometimes it's referred to as the extra Calvinisticum uh, because he has not only spent time thinking about this doctrine, but also about its importance for our understanding of the Reformation and beyond that, our understanding of what it means to be Protestant and to articulate doctrine in a way that's consistent both with the scriptures and the church Catholic, the church universal. K.J. Drake is assistant professor of history at Redeemer University, and he's also the author of a new book called The Flesh of the Word, the Extra Calvinisticum from Zwingli to Early Orthodoxy, published in the Oxford Studies and Historical Theology series, an outstanding book that I can't wait to talk about. K.J., thanks for joining me on the Credo Podcast. Thank you, Dr. Baird. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, many of our listeners, maybe some of them have heard of this doctrine of the extra, but I'm guessing that some of them have not. Maybe you could take just a minute or two, and right at the beginning of our conversation, can you just define what is it that uh, both the church fathers as well as the Protestant reformers, what is it that they meant when they referred, as I just said a minute ago, quoting from the Heidelberg Catechism, they referred to Christ's divinity as beyond the bounds of his humanity? Yeah, that's a great question. So this term extra-Calvinisticum can sometimes lead us down the wrong path. This ultimately was a term of polemics that certain Lutheran theologians would accuse the Reformed of holding to the, quote, extra-Calvinisticum, which literalistically translated means that strange Calvinistic beyond idea. Mm. Um, But what this comes down to really is how is it that Jesus is both truly divine and truly human with respect to creation itself? In some ways, this idea of the extra-Calvinisticum can arise from a very simple question that even a young child might be able to ask. Where is Jesus now? That question needs to be addressed according to his complex nature as the divine logos and as the one who took flesh for our salvation. 
So when the Protestant reformers or the patristics or the medieval scholastics talk about Christ's presence, they're wrestling with this dual aspect. The Christ is fully present to all of creation as the eternal word of the Father, omnipresent along with the Spirit and the Father eternally. Um, and also, he is particular. He took a specific human body and lived in it in a real, tangible way. So when they talk about the extra Calvinisticum, what they're really saying is Christ is both simultaneously fully present in his incarnate state, in his incarnate body, and at the same time, beyond it as the second person of the Trinity, the omnipresent eternal word of the Father. The way you just articulated that is so, so very helpful, and it gives us uh, a sense of how to even speak of the incarnation. I, I think oftentimes, uh, sometimes even by, you know, significant theologians, oftentimes when the incarnation is is explained, there there can be a bit of a hesitancy, I, I think, to, to say that, uh, to say anything of, of the divine nature of Christ that, that would be mm-hmm. beyond just the human experience. And so it does raise uh, that big question, well, is is the divine nature, is divinity, uh, is it somehow circumscribed or limited just to, to the human nature? Uh, mm-hmm. This, you know, this extra that you're describing, uh, well, if I think if we take a, an honest look at the past, uh, let's say, 100, 200 years in modern theology, Am I right in saying that, well, there's been some suspicion towards it? Yeah, I think there has been on a couple fronts. Um, As you mentioned in your intro, especially coming out of 19th century German theology, there has been this emphasis on the kenosis of Christ, looking at Philippians 2 especially, that Christ emptied himself. And what did that mean? In many um, forms of Christology, this was the idea that Christ withdrew from his divine nature in some sense to take on human flesh. And this was really propelled in the rest of theology by Karl Barth and others, and directed at the extra specifically. So Barth specifically went from actually affirming the extra in his first dogmatic works to ultimately rejecting it when he came to write the church dogmatics, saying that it ultimately opened us up to another God. Mm. So for Barth, The focus was knowing God only in the incarnate Jesus Christ. And by doing that, he ended up arguing that to speak of the Logos, a Sarkos, the Logos without flesh, was a statement of unbelief. He called it uh, in the German, a a theological industrial accident was his term for it. And one of his concerns here was tied up with the idea of natural theology, especially in his context in the 1930s and into the 40s. Uh, If you remember the famous debate with Emil Bruner over natural theology, his concern was if you have a eternal logos beyond the incarnate Christ, that that opens up some other way of knowing God apart from the incarnate one. And therefore, he shut the door entirely on the extra Calvinisticum. And many figures followed him in the 20th century along that same route, either explicitly rejecting the extra as mistaken or by just failing to ever engage with its aspects. Wow. You know, the, the mention of Bart and, and, and his reasons for rejecting it, it, it does show, I think, just how different, uh, in, in his case, you know, 
his version of of a modern theology can be um, mm-hmm. from uh, so so many of the Protestant reformers that came before him who didn't just think that the extra was say convenient, but actually thought no, this is this is essential and maybe contrary to to Bart to be a little bit anachronistic here, uh, even considered the extra um, something that we can know through the way God has revealed himself to yeah. us. Of course, um, many of them were, didn't have that, that type of allergy to natural theology in the way that, that Bart did, but, um, but it, 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 it does shed light on, on just the contrast between the two. Now, now maybe I can um, just, just push in this direction a little bit more. Uh, is it, is it just Bart or in your research, are you, have you also found that uh, this is this type of suspicion uh, seems to pop up with, you know, the modern period at large? Yeah, I do think the modern period at large has taken, because um, what we'll kind of discuss is that ultimately there were two ways of articulating this, the Lutheran and the Reformed. And modern theology, especially 19th century onward, has largely kind of operated in a kind of Lutheran idiom focusing on either the expansion of Christ's human nature to cosmic proportion, or in some ways the reverse of that, of the diminishing of the divine nature into the human nature. Mm. And you see this in figures such as Pannenberg, um, Moltmann to a degree has an aspect of this, but also in just kind of general treatments of Christology, the divine nature of Christ is often neglected during his earthly ministry. Um, And sometimes you can have the flip side in the more folk expression that after the ascension, the humanity goes away, Um, right? You can kind of get that idea, especially when you talk to congregants sometimes, that Christ stops being incarnate after the ascension. And the traditional Chalcedonian doctrine rejects both of those, Mm. that once Christ becomes incarnate in time, he is fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man from that point into the new heavens and the new earth, and perpetually, right? And so what the doctrine of the extra is trying to do is to preserve this idea of truly God and truly man from the moment of incarnation into the eschaton. Now, you mentioned uh, just a second ago how this doctrine really becomes focal in some of the debates between the Reformed and Lutherans, and I do want us to get there. However, maybe we need to uh, take a step back because um, I, even though Calvin's name gets uh, latched on to this idea, uh, it's not original to Calvin, which might surprise some people. I mean, on the one mm-hmm. hand, Calvin has this, this uh, great sentence. Uh, this is from his Institutes, and I'm just reading a snippet of it, where he says, here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, and to hang upon the cross. Yet he continuously filled the world, even as he had done from the beginning. Now, that's a um, a very succinct way of describing uh, this extra mm-hmm. as we have. But uh, folks may be surprised to learn that uh, this isn't original with Calvin. I mean, well, I, I suppose if we went way back, you can even hear the Apostle Paul coming out and, mm-hmm. and some of the language mm-hmm. that Calvin's using um, when he says he's he continues to uh, fill and sustain the world from the beginning. But can we also say that 
uh, this idea is precedes the reformers and say the church fathers? Uh, certainly, yes. This idea of the extra, especially as it's expressed in Calvin there in almost this doxological mode of this praise to the infinite one who became a finite human while remaining infinite. You can see that throughout the church fathers. Uh, Athanasius makes express statements of it in On the Incarnation. Uh, there are hints of it in passages in Origen. You can also see it expressed in Cyril of Alexandria. And Augustine has an entire letter, uh, the letter to Dardanus, that engages with this idea. Um, those are really well documented in the work of David Willis in mm. Calvin's Catholic Christology, as well as Andrew McGinnis's work, The Son of God Beyond the Flesh, that looks at the pre-Reformation period, especially of the extra. And so I really utilized those works a lot mm. um, when I did mine. But you also see it in the Middle Ages. Um, McGinnis especially shows how Aquinas uses this idea um, to help us understand the relationship of Christ's body in the tomb and Christ's divinity at the same time. So this has ample precedent before the Reformation, but it really is in the Reformation where the doctrine comes into its own as there is actual dispute over the matter. And so beforehand, I would say that it's there in kind of germinal form as the doxological expression of the church. And it's with the Reformation that it emerges as a kind of self-consciously articulated doctrine. Mm. You know, one of the things that is so helpful in your, your recent book, The Flesh of the Word, is that you lay down several conditions for this extra. And, and I really like what you just said, because uh, this is a good word to our listeners, that when we talk about this, this doctrine, this important concept in Christology, um, we're, this is actually a, a way for us to see, uh, to connect the dots between, say, our Protestant faith and uh, the church Catholic, that is, with a small c, Catholic being universal, whether it's an Athanasius, one of the creeds, or even, like you mentioned, even some of the medieval theologians themselves, like a Thomas Aquinas, there is this consistent uh, and steady continuity. Uh, but, it, but at the same time, it does seem to burst. Um, it does seem to burst when you get to the 16th century. Maybe you could start us off. Uh, because uh, for some of our listeners, they may be wondering, okay, I think I have a general idea for it, but what would be some of the characteristics, some of the conditions that that uh, would actually define whether, say, I'm I'm holding to the extra or not? Yeah. So when I was trying to think through, like, how do you move from just kind of that more ecstatic praise that you see in Calvin and others? To a worked out doctrine, I came up with four kind of criteria that had to develop as like self-conscious doctrines during the Reformation. Uh, the first is that during Christ's earthly ministry, he exists both fully in his incarnate presence, but also beyond the flesh, as they, they say, extra carnum, beyond this uh, limitation of human nature, he also exists as the eternal word. So during his earthly ministry, Christ exists beyond the flesh. However, this continues into the whole career of the God-man. Especially important is after the ascension into heaven. What does it mean that Christ's body ascends to the right hand of the Father? And what the Reformed ultimately will say, that this must be understood in some sense locally. 
that Christ's body as it ascends still exists as a human body with a plate and does not become uh, placeless with the ascension. So Christ in his earthly ministry is beyond the flesh. After the ascension, he is bodily in heaven with God the Father. But in the third aspect, he is present to us by the Holy Spirit and his divinity in the time between his first and second coming. So between his ascension and when he comes again, Christ's presence to us is mediated by the Holy Spirit and his divinity, while his body is absent from us as it is in heaven. So those are the three main components um, that we can begin with, that during his earthly ministry, he is beyond the flesh. With the ascension, his body goes to heaven in some local manner, yet he is still with us when it comes to his divinity and through the Holy Spirit. A fourth criterion is a doctrine known as the communicatio idiomatum, or the communication of attributes. This is a term that goes back to the patristic period, but in this discussion of the extra Calvinisticum, it's very important that we understand how it works. So this question comes, how do we think about these two sets of attributes? Christ is truly divine and therefore has all of the same attributes as the Father and Spirit do with the divine nature, and he is a human being, having all the necessary attributes or qualities that it means to be a human being. And what the communicatio idiomatum says is that all of those attributes are obtained in the person of Christ. So the person of the Son has all divine attributes and all human attributes. However, we can speak of one set of attributes and apply it to the other nature. So, for instance, we can say, as um, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 2.8, that you crucified the Lord of glory, right? That's quite an interesting statement, right? You can't crucify the creator. He has no body. But here we have an example of an attribute of Christ's divine nature, that he is the Lord of glory, being applied to something that occurred in his human nature, being crucified. However, what the Reformed argued is that this transference, this communication of attributes, is not from one nature to the other nature, but is from both natures to the person alone, so that there is no metaphysical sharing of properties. So the final kind of uh, factor in expressing that extra... Um, the final factor in expressing the extra Calvinisticum is a proper articulation of the communicatio idiomatum, or the communication of attributes, that terminates on the person rather than allowing a sharing between the two natures. And that's probably one of the hardest things to articulate in the more technical elements of this as it develops in the 16th century. Hmm. You know, when we talk about the 16th century, we could be tempted to think that this, um, the concept of the extra was one that, uh, you know, was essentially absent and this is only a development that comes much, much later. But actually, many of the debates and uh, sometimes very heated debates uh, between the Lutherans and the Reformed um, come back to this issue again and again. So can you just take us back to the 16th century and, and just give us a, a bit of an idea for how uh, this idea emerges within these Lutheran and Reformed debates. Yeah, so this all comes about kind of on another issue. 
So this begins with a debate over the nature of the Lord's Supper. Coming out of the medieval period and wrestling with Roman Catholic doctrines of transubstantiation, various of the reformers begin articulating different doctrines of the Supper, specifically Luther and Zwingli. And it's over their debate here on how can Christ be present in the Eucharist that different articulations of the nature of Christ's body and therefore the relationship between his natures becomes extremely important. So this begins as Luther and Zwingli are going back and forth over how is Christ present in the Eucharistic elements. Zwingli actually begins this by arguing in a work in the early 1520s that because Christ has ascended into heaven, his body is locally in heaven and therefore is not bodily present in the bread and the wine. Now, it seems unlikely that Zwingli came up with this on his own, and certain scholars have indicated that there might have been arguments like this in the Bohemian Brethren or the Hussite movement in the late, um, the late Middle Ages. But it's through this invocation of the ascension that this ball gets rolling. In light of this argument, Luther, who argued for a corporeal presence of Christ in the elements, had to articulate how is it that Christ's body which we see has ascended into heaven, is in, with, and under, as the Lutheran tradition will come to say, the bread and the wine. And so he ends up with the doctrine that we end up calling ubiquity. So through his careful articulation in response to Zwingli, Luther will argue that Christ's human body, because of the incarnation, takes the property of omnipresence, and therefore can be on all of the Eucharistic tables around the world every time the Lord's Supper is done. This idea of ubiquity versus the extra Calvinisticum will really be the driving force between the Reformed and the Lutheran division on this issue. It will come up again and again, and the next generation of theologians will have to articulate both positions more clearly and with the best tools they have at their disposal. So it begins with this dispute between Luther and Zwingli, and from there, we'll actually spin out into a dispute between the traditions that both of them ultimately found. I quoted uh, Calvin uh, a couple minutes ago. And so maybe some of our listeners are surprised to hear that actually not just Calvin, but Zwingli himself uh, has something to say about the extra. Uh, how, how would you summarize the way that, that Zwingli is articulating this extra in the midst of some of these debates? Mm -hmm. So for Zwingli, it's mostly a function of his desire to preach true religion. Um, one of the things that I, I appreciated getting to do this study was spending a lot of time with Zwingli. He's often overshadowed by figures like Calvin, and it, it should be admitted that Calvin is a more impressive theologian in many ways than Zwingli was. But Zwingli himself has a lot to offer. And his argument was basically on the nature of Christ as the mediator. So for Zwingli, the essence of religion was coming to Jesus Christ, who was truly God and truly man, as the mediator with the Father, who could take all of our sins upon himself and deliver us by his divine nature to union with um, God. And so when he sees this idea of Luther that ultimately gets articulated, arguing that the human nature becomes omnipresent, what Zwingli argues is that's no longer a human nature. That a human nature, by its definition, is limited 
has a limited space. It's finite. And Christ took everything that we are, including our finitude, not to overcome that finitude, but to save us in our finitude. So fundamentally, for Zwingli, that's the crux of all of this. Mm. What does it mean that Jesus was a true human being and remains such? And so when Luther and Zwingli meet at the Marburg Colloquy in 1529, where they come together to dispute this, that's what Zwingli is continually coming back to. That Jesus had a true body, and a true body is in a place, and not in heaven and at the table at the same time. That's really what's at stake for him. How is it that Christ can be the true mediator between God and humanity? This is so fascinating because here we have Zwingli and Luther uh, in, in such heated debate, and we maybe some of our listeners have are familiar with uh, some of the strong words that are exchanged between the two of them. Uh, it's it's no small matter, and yet it does seem that whether or not uh, you know you agree with Swingley's particular articulation of of say what's happening in the supper or what's not happening in the, in Lord's supper, nonetheless he does seem to have a, a certain Christology that other Reformed thinkers would, would, would have agreed with uh, in his polemic against Luther. And the extras, it seems to be one of those core, those core facets. Um, it's, it's so interesting that you mentioned this because um, as we talk about Zwingli, uh, you're right, he tends to be overshadowed. And so much, I think that's, that's uh, it's such a contribution out of your work because you actually bring him back to life in a sense to say, mm-hmm. well, you know, this, yeah, certainly there were disagreements even between Zwingli and other Reformed theologians, but, but look at what he's saying about the extra here. Could this actually be uh, a significant uh, point of, of contrast even between uh, many of the Reformed theologians and what becomes known as as uh, this Lutheran position. Now, is Zwingli the only one though? Because uh, could we also just to you know give an example here? Um, what about uh, another Reformed thinker like Peter Martyr, or sometimes he's referred to as Peter Martyr from Zwingli? Is he's coming into even his own polemical exchanges with? Uh, certain Lutheran theologians, is he also trying to articulate this concept of the extra? And and how is it, if so, how is it actually, um, is it working to his advantage? Is is he's not just trying to argue uh, a certain view of the supper, but also trying to substantiate maybe Orthodox Christology? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's definitely not just Wingling. Even in the very first decade of the Reformation. You see Zwingli articulating the extra. There are also hints that it's in people like Oikolampadius, who was a first-generation reformer along with Zwingli. You see it picked up by Bollinger, um, Zwingli's successor, as well as by Calvin in the very earliest uh, edition of the Institutes in 1536. So this is widespread amongst all those who will become reformed. And the person who really takes it up as the the articulator of this will be Peter uh, Martyr Vermigli. He will be the guy who really writes um, what I think is the definitive treatise on Reformed Christology during this period. It's a work called The Dialogue on the Two Natures of Christ, uh, written in 1561. And in this work, what's going on is uh, Vermigli's realized that we've moved beyond a discussion about the Lord's Supper. That's gone on. 
But as various Lutheran theologians try to articulate this idea of ubiquity, that Christ's body is omnipresent, they are beginning not just to have a what Vermigli thinks is a wrong view of the supper, but in supporting that, they are falling into Christological error. And so he's especially concerned with a Lutheran theologian named Johann Brenz, who was an early uh, figure around Luther and was very prominent throughout um, probably the 1520s up until about 1570, very active. What Brenz ends up arguing in order to support Luther's position is that from the very moment of incarnation, Jesus Christ's body is omnipresent. So Christ's body is literally everywhere in creation from the moment of incarnation itself. And Vermigli wants to push back on this. So he writes this dialogue between two figures, one representing Johann Brenz, and most of the figure's quotes come directly from Brenz's work, and the other representing Vermigli. And what he's trying to argue is that according to Catholic Christology, going back to the ancient uh, Council of Chalcedon, that we cannot do this. This is fall into the error of Eutychianism. So Eutychianism is the heresy that would hold that the two natures of Christ, rather than maintaining their distinctiveness without confusion or separation, mold, mold into one to become what they call a tertium quid or a third thing. What Vermigli says is the Lutheran Christology coming out of friends ultimately is collapsing the two natures such that Christ's human nature is no longer human, but it come, becomes quite literally divine. And so Vermigli throughout this dialogue is utilizing all of the resources that he has from both his scholastic training and his humanist training to overcome this idea relying on arguments from scripture and the church fathers and the councils to try to show why the extra Calvinisticum is the only way to articulate a fully orthodox Christology. I'm really glad that you are highlighting Vermigli's work here because when we think of the Reformation and even the second generation of reformers, and some of the most important works that come out of that period, uh, we're, we're often, you know, we often gravitate to some of Luther's uh, polemical writings or perhaps Calvin's institutes. But uh, Peter Mar often is forgotten. And I think that is a real tragedy. And I, I would agree with you. I think that, that this work of his on Christology, uh, this dialogue on the two natures in Christ, I think this is, I mean, maybe I'm overstating this, but uh, I think it, in my opinion, it may be one of the most important works of the period, uh, in large part because he's being a theologian. I mean, he's taking all of the, um, all of the training that we see really uh, flower and blossom in the Reformation, biblical exegesis, and his attention to church history and Catholicity, as well as um, some of its theological insights over, say, justification. Uh, but here he's turning a corner, really, and he's saying, well, we also have to think very carefully about Christology so that we do not fall into uh, a mistake like Eutychianism. Would you say, I mean, as, as you've reflected on this, um, I mean, Peter Martyr Vermigli, uh, there's different ways he's been described. I mean, clearly he has this um, reformed 
uh, context in which he is uh, writing. But of course, uh, I think one of the things I like about him so much is, and we can't say this of all the reformers, but we can of Peter Martyr, is that he has this uh, education and training and deep, deep knowledge in scholastic theology that I think in this debate really helps him. You see, I mean, because in, in, in arguing for the extra, you have to be very precise and scholastic uh, theology at this point is quite precise in terms of what what actually counts as Orthodox Christology. But all that to say, uh, as you think not just about Peter Martyr Vermigli, but as you start to think about how he bridges, uh, acts as a bridge per se, to um, the early Reformed Orthodox period, are there others who then pick up this line of thought and adopt, say, a, a more scholastic method, but in order to argue in favor of this, what we're, we're referring to as this reformed understanding of the extra. Yeah, so I, I like how you put it there. I do think Vermigli is deeply underread, um, like not just studied, right, but like actually read by people in the church. His works are now all in translation uh, for about the last generation. And he is a joy to read. Um, the dialogue on, on the two natures in Christ is just a beautiful work. It's really uh, accessible. And I, w- I would recommend it to anyone if they're interested in Christology. Uh, read on the incarnation by Athanasius first, um, but then come to Vermigli and he really will uh, show you great things. I do think he should be seen. Um, some scholars have put it like there's actually a triumvirate of the second generation of the Reformation. You have Calvin, Bullinger, and Vermigli, and they are all equally responsible for setting the stage of what will become the Reformed tradition and Reformed orthodoxy. In fact, when, uh, in my book, what I really found is like, I kind of started off wanting to look at Calvin more, and what you find out pretty quickly is that Calvin really didn't write much about the extra. He wrote a couple of statements in the Institutes. Um, that you've quoted one of the most famous, right? And he has a little bit of comment in some of his commentary. But what I found out is basically he wrote a letter saying that I didn't need to write on this because Vermigli did it. Mm. He was very aware of Vermigli's work here (laughs) and considered it like, I I don't need to write a treatise on Christology. It exists out there. Go read Vermigli. And that same spirit of Vermigli's careful balancing of humanism in the form of dialogue with scholastic chops and philosophical ability will really carry on into the early Reformed Orthodox period. Mm. And so my last chapter picks up on a figure who's very little known, but is extremely important as we see this transition from kind of the Reformation into Reformed Orthodoxy proper, named Anton de la Roche Chandu. Chandu is a fascinating figure um, that um, kind of follows along this necessary movement from being a student of the Reformation into a fully confessionalized church coming out of the Reformation. What are we going to do now that we're not just reforming, but we've got to create churches with fully orbed academies and defended theology? And so he actually was at Geneva for a brief time, trained under Beza and Calvin. He was the second, he was the first assistant pastor in Paris in the Huguenot church there until he had to flee after he was imprisoned for owning a copy of Calvin's Institutes. And he was extremely active in the French Reformed churches. And one of his works that was 
part of this ongoing attempt to bring the best of scholastic thought to the Reformed tradition was a work called On the True Human Nature of Jesus Christ, or uh, which I call in the book just De Veritate, On the True Human Nature of Jesus. And here he says we need to have a shift, right? There's a lot of good to humanistic style that you see in Calvin and even in Vermigli and others. But he says we need to go to the scholastic method because we are getting complicated here. If we want to lay out the very clear position exactly where we disagree, we need to return to and reform the scholastic methodology of the Middle Ages, setting out very clearly what are our principles from Scripture, how are we arguing from them, what distinctions are we making, and how can these come together to express the truth. And so Shandu really is taking the extra to a whole new level. And he doesn't do this just on his own, but in response to the continual development of Lutheranism as, Lutheranism as well, which is also turning to a more scholastic method. And so his work really shows how scholasticism is a, uh, the Reformed scholasticism is a kind of natural outworking of the desires of the Reformation, not as some have claimed a movement away from it, but really fulfilling the very purpose that they had of articulating the truths of Scripture fully and clearly to defend the faith. That's, that's really what Shandu is doing with his work. Drake, this has been, uh, I think, so uh, illuminating because uh, in many ways, uh, this doctrine of the extra is forgotten today. Uh, it, it, I remember uh, talking to a couple theologians who were, uh, you know, a generation before me, and them saying when they went to seminary, even and even learned Christology, it was just never even mentioned. <laughs> mm. And I can't help but wonder: is that still continuing today? And if so, um, goodness, is our is our Christology? Uh, especially if we think of ourselves as um, really uh, children of, you know, the reformers and not just the reformers, but as you've mentioned, both the medieval scholastics as well as the church fathers, uh, if we are going to consider ourselves uh, orthodox in our Christology, are we actually incomplete in the way that we are either ignoring or maybe in that Bartian uh, spirit even a bit suspicious towards something like the extra. And so all that to say, it is it is a bit concerning, but I'm also so encouraged because to see, um, you know, some of your own thought as well as some of the others you've mentioned, I think for the first time, we're starting to see the the, the buds of, of, you know, a flower that could really grow in the sun and uh, blossom in, and uh, come into full maturity as we uh, help Protestants today think hard about, well, what is this extra all about, and why did so many before us think that uh, it was so essential both to avoiding Christological heresies and to articulating uh, not just Christology but other doctrines of the faith so well. Now, with all of that said, uh, let me give you the last word and ask you uh, if if some of our listeners are intrigued by this. Um, they could certainly go to your book, The Flesh of the Word, The Extra Calvinisticum from Zwingli to Early Orthodoxy, uh, published with Oxford. Uh, but what would be some go-to resources, maybe even from the past, that you would say you should definitely read this? Mm. 
Yeah. So uh, to really get a handle on this, we need to go back to the ABCs of Christology. And what does it mean to know Jesus as the eternal word from the Father who took our flesh to redeem, um, redeem us from sin? And so I think the place that you need to start with all this is probably Athanasius on the Incarnation. One of uh, everything else in Christology is in some ways footnotes on that. So I begin there, which is there to defend the Nicene tradition that Jesus Christ is consubstantial with the Father. And it's that glorious mystery that we celebrate, that the one who is God took our very flesh. So I would begin with Athanasius, and you will find in his work a clear articulation of the extra. Um, And from there, I would turn to look at the Council of Chalcedon especially. Um, You can go out and find the Chalcedonian Creed and see how carefully the fathers articulated this that Christ is one person in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation, that this is the great mystery of our faith. Along with that, um, I'd recommend uh, the Tome of Leo the Great, which comes right before the Council of Chalcedon. All of this aspect is really just contained there. Um, From that, I would really recommend, as I said before, Um, the dialogue on the two natures in Christ by Vermigli. I think that would be a um, great way to dig into this more fully. And uh, yeah, he's he's just a joy to read. And if you want to be introduced to a reformer that you maybe never heard of that has a cool name, go check out Peter Martyr Vermigli as well. Mm -hmm. We've been talking to K.J. Drake, Assistant Professor of History at Redeemer University in Ontario. He's also the author of The Flesh of the World, The Extra Calvinisticum from Zwingli to Early Orthodoxy. And uh, I would encourage our listeners, if you haven't um, read this this, or, or perhaps even encountered uh, this doctrine of the extra, definitely do go to some of these resources that uh, he has recommended. Uh, from Athanasius uh, to Vermigli, I think you will, your eyes will be open to a whole new world of Christology that perhaps you never considered before, and one that is drawing from the rich text of Scripture itself, as it articulates in a, in a very beautiful and mysterious way what the Incarnation is all about. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.